22-6036 United States v. Amador Bonilla. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. I'm Laura Deskin with the Federal Public Defender's Office for the Western District of Oklahoma, and we represent Mr. Amador Bonilla. I want to start here with the level of scrutiny, because we acknowledge up front that if it's rational basis, we're dead in the water. And acknowledge also, discuss this Fifth Circuit case that recently came forward and ruling against us. And the Fifth Circuit case dodged the issue as to what level of scrutiny to apply. And I think it's really important that that not happen here. They felt that there were equally compelling arguments on both sides. And I disagree with that. We're dealing here with an equal protection claim that is based on race, and that also involves a criminal law. And that type of challenge simply requires this type of analysis. Our district court rejected that and went with the government's position in this case that essentially the government has plenary power over immigration. And because this involves immigration and is in the middle of the immigration laws, that therefore rational basis applies. We stay out of it. And I just don't think that is true at all. I briefed it, I think, fully as to why that is so. But I want to point out also that the Supreme Court recently, again, used Arlington Heights to evaluate an equal protection claim. I'm sorry, they used what? I apologize. What did you just say? They used what? The Supreme Court recently applied the Arlington Heights framework in an immigration context. That's Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. That's 140 S. Court 1891-2020. I don't think it is. And that involved DACA. They did not find in favor of the Regents there. However, they did use the Arlington Heights analysis and went through it there. So I don't think that there's any blanket rule that the government just gets a free pass just because immigration is involved here. It's a very separate issue. Certainly, they have a plenary power to decide who is permitted to come into this country. But once you're in here, we have constitutional protections that protect all of us. Here, for example, you're charged with illegal reentry. All of your constitutional rights attach. And there's no special exception that if you're making this particular type of claim that this violates equal protection and that it has racist origins, that somehow that is an exception and now you're a national base. What's your best case law? I mean, you just cited this DHS case, but what's your best case law for applying for the Arlington Heights test here? I think that the best case law is probably, well, we have the Wong Wing case that involved 
whether or not you can you have a right to a jury trial when you are involved in immigration proceedings and they didn't they tried to carve out you know an exception saying well again because this is an immigration issue you don't have that right but they in that case they squarely you know said you don't lose your due process rights you're here in the United States now and all of us whether you're here whatever your status is are entitled to those protections so I think the Wong Wing case is really the the best case so presuming that Arlington Heights then is the framework I'd like to move on to applying it the district court focused on the 1952 case and we really have a question here as to where do we start you have the 1929 Act and the 1952 Act 1952 was where the illegal reentry laws became section 1326 but illegal reentry as this law and almost virtually word-for-word started in 1929 so there is an argument that really the starting point should be 1929 and not 1952 so if that is where we start did you argue that in front of the district court in the district court we were focusing on we were kind of mimicking Judge Dew's analysis there and what Judge Dew did was start it kind of gets conflated in places but the 1952 Act I guess is where it starts but there's a firm acknowledgement that 1929 was the original enactment and that 1952 was a reenactment did you say let's look at 1929 and here are the things that were said in 1929 did you present that argument yes we did present that argument that in 1929 here's the record and here's what was said in there I think that the analysis kind of tilted a little more to the reason why this is relevant is because it goes into determining whether Congress is applying the Arlington Heights factor it's part of the historical background of the 1952 Act and then did the what I would say clearly racist origins in 1929 where there's a eugenics panel and all of this going on discussing the reasons why Mexicans should not be allowed in this country in order to preserve the purity of the Anglo-Saxon race does that so that being the history then is that discriminatory intent then still attached in 1952 or are you starting straight with 1952 and ignoring that is there any indication in 1952 that they were considering this race based there's no explicit discussion in 1952 about it and I think that's what became important because of what happened in 1929 and because there were still I think at least 30 Congress members from 
that era who were in the 1952 legislature, that they would have known about its racist origins, particularly because the eugenics issue and all of that discussion came from the chairman of the immigration committee who discussed, you know, these are the reasons, you know, everything that this eugenics expert associated with the Third Reich discussed was going to be critical to determining the immigration laws. And then this law of illegal reentry was created in 1929. So in 1952, no, they didn't discuss that directly. I guess I'm still a little confused. Are you, so are you, you're saying that you argued it slightly differently then, or you argued it for a different purpose, which is just more of a general historical context in the district court in 1929? No, I guess I didn't mean to say that. I think we mimicked all of the arguments made in Nevada. And those were, 1929, I think there was, the focus was on 1929 and why it was relevant that the 1952 Congress didn't disavow any of the racist origins for the creation of the law. Is there any indication that they knew about the racist origins? I think because of the, some of the Congress, congressional members were the same, but there's no, no, there's nothing in the record that says that anybody grappled with it, mentioned it. There's a 1952, 1950 Senate report that discusses, they use some language that is concerning that would indicate that perhaps, yes, the intent of the immigration laws in general were to try to preserve some of the Anglo-Saxon-ness of our country. But they were not discussed directly in context of 1326. It just wasn't, it wasn't an active debate. So, but what standard, I guess, are you applying for incorporation of the 1929 bad intent to 1952? I mean, or not incorporating it. In order not to incorporate it in 1952, are you saying, Congress, there should have been a disavowal? Is that a requirement? Yes, I think that it goes to, I don't think that we can say there has to be an explicit disavowal, but there needs, it goes towards the factors of the history of this act, that there was not this disavowal. So the silence is, it's not just that if it was silent, that's the end and the defense wins. It's that the silence indicates, is another factor towards showing that the discriminatory intent was still there in the 1952 Congress because of how it all started in 1929 and because it was word for word with minor changes and no discussion or acknowledgement of this incredible history that led to it. What's your best case on that point? Well, I think that our best case is actually, 
We've got two cases, and I want to distinguish them. The government relies on Abbott v. Perez, and I think that really because Abbott v. Perez is so different that it goes to show it ends up being supportive for us. Do you want me to continue doing this now, or shall I? I can rebut. That's up to you. Let me address this on rebuttal, because I think it's going to take a while, a little bit. Thank you. May it please the Court, Stephen Kroeger on behalf of the United States. The District Court properly denied Mr. Amador-Bonilla's motion to dismiss and properly concluded that 8 U.S.C. Section 1326 does not violate the equal protection component of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. There are a number of avenues this Court could take to affirm. The first big division in terms of which way it could affirm is whether this Court should apply rational basis or Arlington Heights. It's the government's position that this Court should apply rational basis for a number of reasons and that Arlington Heights is not appropriate to apply for the same reasons. Starting with what the District Court based its decision on, the Supreme Court has been very clear in numerous cases that legislation and executive action, but here specifically legislation, that addresses immigration issues and naturalization issues, judicial review of it is extremely limited. Depending on the circumstances, it's been called rational basis. It's also been called narrow judicial review. And I believe there was one other in Mandel that was something along the lines of legitimate and bona fide reasons. This Court has applied that narrow judicial review in the context of a criminal case. In the United States v. Houtron, I apologize on the pronunciation on that, Huizar, which dealt with the 922, I believe, G4 offense for being an illegal alien in possession of a firearm. In that case, there were two different challenges raised to that statute, a Second Amendment challenge and, as applicable here, a due process challenge. And this Court applied the limit, what I'll call the narrow judicial review line of cases for immigration matters, to that due process challenge. Was that case, was the question directly raised? I mean, was it argued, oh, this is a criminal plus immigration and we think that something more than rational basis is required, but the Court rejected that and said no. In an immigration case, as long as immigration is involved, it's rational basis. So the opinion is not clear on how intensely it was litigated. What the opinion says is this is, essentially it starts with the premise this is a criminal case because it was a direct appeal from a criminal case, and that the issue that was being challenged was a due process claim 
under the Fifth Amendment and involved alienage. And because it involved alienage, this line of cases from the Supreme Court applies and rational basis applies. And then it went on to apply, I believe, intermediate scrutiny on the entire Second Amendment claim because it didn't want to address, in terms of specifically the Second Amendment, whether someone who's an illegal alien is treated differently than the rest of the populace. But you said that in this case, the Tenth Circuit applied rational basis. I'm asking, was the issue actually raised whether or discussed by the court that rational basis is appropriate even though this involves criminal conviction? It did not do that. I don't believe that it specifically addressed this is criminal versus non-criminal. It at least assumed so because it was a direct criminal appeal challenging a criminal statute. And I believe it cited Mandel, among other cases, as the reason for applying rational basis. But even beyond this, Ms. Deskin, arguing for Mr. Amador Bonilla, argued that her best case to support the claim that in criminal cases, they're treated differently is Wong Wing. But what Wong Wing said is criminal aliens have to be treated the same as citizens for due process purposes in terms of they're afforded due process protections. The government has never alleged that due process does not apply to Mr. Amador Bonilla. He was indicted by a grand jury. He was given the opportunity to go to trial. He eventually pled guilty. The question here isn't does due process apply even in terms of can he make the challenge. The only question as far as Wong Wing would be concerned is what level of scrutiny applies. And Wong Wing did not address the level of scrutiny. In fact, Wong Wing supports the government in its dicta because it said that a illegal reentry statute that was similar, although I believe it only applied to people from China, was clearly within Congress's power to enact. And here, 1326, and even the 1929 statute, was broad-based and applied to anybody from anywhere who reentered the country after being, now the terminology is removed, but previously deported and excluded. And so what you have is you have Wong Wing that actually the court admittedly in dicta says Congress clearly had the power to enact as long as it provided the normal due process considerations that come with criminal punishment. So indictment, provision of an attorney, jury trial, or the ability to plead guilty and waive jury trial, things like that. Beyond that, in Trump v. Hawaii, which is one of the cases in the government's brief, the Supreme Court explained that it had applied this line of case law in a number of different constitutional considerations and other issues. Now admittedly, again, it didn't address criminal law specifically, but it essentially said we've applied this narrow judicial review broadly. But even beyond the immigration argument, Arlington Heights shouldn't apply for a different reason. And that's the Supreme Court's decision in O'Brien, where the Supreme Court has been, it was very explicit, 
and explaining that courts will not dive into the purposes of Congress in enacting a law. And that is exactly what Arlington Heights is designed to do. It doesn't ask, is the law essentially racist in its application? It doesn't ask if the law is facially race-based or racially discriminatory. It asks, what was the purpose, what was the motivating purpose for Congress? And O'Brien said, you don't get to ask that question. Now, admittedly, Arlington Heights came after O'Brien, but Arlington Heights treated O'Brien differently than the other cases that involved state and local statutes in terms of excluding that, saying there have been cases where we've said that where we really didn't mean it. This is further amplified by Hunter, where the court, in applying Arlington Heights to the Alabama Constitutional Convention, made a specific caveat, quoting the same information, the same statements from O'Brien, saying we don't look into the motives of the legislatures to invalidate a statute, prefacing it with, quote, with respect to Congress. And so Hunter shows that there's been a line that's clearly been drawn between Congress and state and local legislators. And it makes sense because Arlington Heights dealt with the seven-member body. It's much easier to tell based on comments from a few members of a seven-member body, or even opening remarks in a 100, 150-member Constitutional Convention. Then when you're talking about a 435-member legislative body, the House of Representatives, and an additional 100-member body, the United States Senate. So applying O'Brien, which the court said, we're not going to avoid on the ground legislation that Congress clearly had the power to enact, and you add the dicta from Wong Wing that says Congress clearly had the power to enact a statute akin to 1326, that should end the inquiry. Well, let's say you lose on this point. And could I get you to address, under Arlington Heights, whether we should look to 1929 or 1952? So Arlington Heights provided several factors, one of which was the historical background. I think there is an argument that the 1929 legislation could be considered as part of the historical background, although the Supreme Court in McCluskey v. Kemp said that the further out you go, the less compelling that historical background is. And here we're talking about a 23-year difference between the 1929 legislation and the 1952 legislation. But I would push back, even if the 1929 legislation is given significant consideration or considered as a large factor, I would push back against the suggestion that it was racist or overwhelmingly racist, especially racist against Latinos. This is because the 1921-1924 Act, which set the basis for the immigration system that was in place that was being enforced by the 1929 Act, specifically excluded Latinos, people from Mexico, Central America, and South America, from the quotas that were the basis for several of the remarks that Ms. Zeskin had alluded to or had quoted both in her briefing during argument. 
As a result, people from Central and South America and Mexico were able to enter into the United States without the numerical quotas that were being placed on people from Eastern Europe and South Europe, and in fact, the entirety of the Eastern Hemisphere, all of Europe and Asia and Africa. What about the eugenics aspects of the original 1929 enacting legislation? That's significant, isn't it? So the fact that there was a eugenics committee that was studying eugenics at the same time, there's never been a link established between the 1929 Act, which is an act of general enforcement, and the work of this specific committee. Moreover, much of the language that the defendant relies upon comes not from a member of Congress, but comes from a witness at a congressional hearing. And so, but even if we go past that, the United States is not arguing that there were no racist members of Congress in 1929. In fact, as is apparent in the record and apparent in the briefing, there were members who tried to exclude people from Latin American countries from entering into the United States, either wholesale or as part of a quota, to put them into the quota system. Congress repeatedly rejected that. And thus, when 1952 rolled around, or even when 1929 rolled around, as I said, people from Mexico, Central America, and South America were not part of this quota system. They had free reign to enter into the United States, provided they met the same criteria as anybody else who was attempting to immigrate into the United States at the time. Along the lines of Arlington Heights and beyond that, I think one important thing to point out is the district court's finding, because the district court made two alternative findings, on the Arlington Heights finding that the record did not show that racial animus was a motivating factor, is ultimately a factual finding. And the Supreme Court made that much clearer in Brnovich. And so the question here isn't de novo review. It's clear error. And so the question is, does the record support the district court's finding? And even when you look at how the 1950 Senate report, and thus the 1952 Act, treated the 1929 legislation, it incorporated it because it wasn't specific as to a single group or a specific occasion. It adopted the 1929 similar language because it applied to everybody. Congress, in enacting 1326 at the end of the day, was looking to have an equally applicable piece of legislation. What do you point to for that? What do you point to in the record for your conclusion? It is the conclusion of the section talking about incorporating the 1929 Act, the conclusion of that section where it discusses, here's why the 1929 measure should be carried forward. I'd have to look into the briefs to find out exactly what page that's on. I see that I'm about out of time, and so I'd love to answer any other questions the court may have. Then I'd ask that you affirm the judgment in the sense below. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal? I think that here we have two cases. There's no case that's directly on all fours with what's happening and what's alleged here. 
If there were, I don't think we'd be here. You have Abbott v. Paris from the Supreme Court and Hunter v. Underwood. Hunter v. Underwood was an equal protection challenge to Alabama's law that took away the right to vote for people convicted of crimes of moral turpitude. It was admittedly racist in origin, and it was never repealed. And they applied Arlington Heights there, and it was, and they found that there was, that racist origins were still infected the whole law and it needed to be repealed. In Abbott v. Paris, you had a redistricting plan, and there it was alleged that there were racist origins to it, but it was a totally different case there. They had a plan that they had put together, I think it was in 2011, that had been attacked on various grounds from both sides as being an improper redistricting. They revisited it, a state court approved a certain plan, and then, so it was not the same plan as 2011 whatsoever. And that redistricting plan was upheld. But the court there said specifically that this was not a case in which a law was originally enacted with discriminatory intent and later reenacted by a different legislature. They said also that they did not see any criteria used that arguably carried forward the effects of discriminatory intent on part of a previous legislature. And I think here we do have that. You have a law that was originally enacted in 1929 with discriminatory intent, and that carried forward. You didn't have this disavowal or anything for us to assume that it did not carry forward. We also have a couple of Supreme Court cases in 2020 that are not cited in my briefs that did not, they're not in there because they did not grapple with equal protection claims. They did not grapple with Arlington Heights. But there's some interesting analysis there that went in. It was Ramos v. Louisiana from the Supreme Court, 140S Court, 1390. And there they dealt with the Sixth Amendment and whether... These are the cases discussed in one of the amicus briefs, I believe, right? Yes. They discussed a unanimous jury in there, and they looked to the racist origins of that law. It wasn't the entire crux of the holding, but it became important there, and it was mentioned. And then in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, 140S Court, 2246, a 2020 case as well, that dealt with the First Amendment and tax credits, and they were alleging that they were religiously biased. And Alito concurred there, acknowledging that he lost, he did not like and think that the racist origins applied, but acknowledges that he lost that in Ramos. And so in his concurrence talked about why the discriminatory aspects of the law's origins were important. And I see I'm out of time. You are. If any of the cases you didn't cite, you mentioned one earlier also, can you send us a 28-J letter on those? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, counsel. We appreciate your arguments. It's a difficult case, and we appreciate your briefing and your arguments. They've been very helpful, and the case will be submitted.